Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. This week, we'll find out if our Patti LaBelle-inspired sweet potato pie rocketed to the top of our charts. We're also trying to make your holidays a little bit easier by introducing a show-stopping hummingbird bunt cake that looks delicious and, dare we say, doesn't appear to involve a ton of work. Finally, we'll wrap up our month of all things round by popping into the preheated book club and reviewing Frank Bruni's book, Born Round. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, have you ever pressed your own homemade apple cider? Yes, as a matter of fact, I have. That is an event that my family did when I was a child for several years. We got together with a neighborhood family and went around Everett, Washington, and collected apples and then pressed cider. Have you done this for the first time? Yeah, it wasn't my first time. I had been to an Apple event a couple of years ago where they had brought the equipment and I had, you know, pressed a few apples. But it was my first time actually having it at my house. It was yeah. a, something I won in an auction. So a lovely gentleman came out to our house. He had his cider press with him. He brought 100 pounds of apples, all oh. sorts of mixed varieties. And we chopped them and then fed them through the machine and yeah. then pressed them and we got oh gosh I don't know maybe 10 gallons of pressed juice so last night I took a tip from some of our preheated listeners I think Ruth is the one in the past who has mentioned making those boiled cider caramels and so I boiled yes. some of that cider down so now I have some really thick apple cider kind of syrup and I'm planning on trying and making those boiled cider caramels this week. So stay tuned and I'll let you know how those turned out. But based on flavor, at least I can tell you they're going to be good. Yeah, there's really no comparison. I can still taste that sometimes. And it was interesting because when I was growing up, we would literally just get in a truck and drive around. And it's astonishing how many people have an apple tree in their yard and the apples are falling onto the ground. And so we would have no shame. We would go up to the door and say, hey, we're making cider. We'd be happy to share some with you if we can pick your apples. And you know, nine times out of 10, the people would say yes. And it just felt so good for that not to go to waste. And then we would always come back and give them you know, some of the cider that we had made. But you know, it was incredible. And the flavor is so unique and delicious. I love that it was an auction item too. That's a really great thing to bid on. Yeah, it was really fun. And my daughter got to do it, of course. And she asked when she was drinking the cider, she kept saying, what's in this? Yeah, <laughs> we, right. We kept saying nothing. It's just apples. And I think the same thing. She's had really good apple cider before, but there's something about the freshness of it and just kind of the purity really mm. do think it elevates it to the next level. Yeah, it really does. And definitely let us know. I mean, with that fresh cider, I think your cider 
caramels are going to be out of this world. I'm very excited about trying that. I will definitely let you guys know and post some pictures as well. Well, Andrea, this episode is dropping on November 26th, and that means that Stirrup Sunday was yesterday in the UK. That's right. And I wanted to just give a shout out to two recipes, if that's something that you didn't have a chance to do yesterday. And if you are wondering, what is Stirrup Sunday? You can listen to episode 100, and we talk a little bit more about that. But it is a day of the year set aside to make your Christmas fruitcake. If you are looking for a fruitcake recipe, Andrea, I found two recently that I thought I would would share. Oh, good. One is... One is from Felicity Cloak, and you, of course, remember Felicity. She is a Guardian food columnist. She did our Sussex Pond pudding recipe back in 73.5. Yes, I love Felicity. I follow her on Instagram now, too, and she's got some really great posts. She's always doing interesting things with food. Her column in The Guardian Food is called Masterclass, and she takes the best available recipes and boils them down and takes this practice from this one and this from the other and then comes up with what she considers to be the ultimate recipe. So she has her Masterclass Christmas cake in the November 3rd issue of Feast. That's their food supplement to the Saturday paper. So I will post that. It's very straightforward. She has lots of pictures. She has really straightforward advice. So that's definitely one to think about. And the second, which may be a little bit more involved, but but not much, is from the Good Housekeeping UK November issue. And it is a spiced port and orange Christmas cake. Ooh, spiced port. Oh, yes. And it says a cake you can be proud of. So... (laughs) Very excited. Now, spiced port, does that mean you're using port as your alcohol and you're adding spices? Or is there a beverage called spiced port that I am not aware of? Looks like the first. Looks like you are doing port and then adding a bunch of mixed spice, cinnamon cloves, etc. as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I was immediately starting the spiced port hunt in my head. Like, where will I go to find this? Right. Because, of course, there's like spiced rum. So maybe maybe there is such a thing. Maybe you should go on that hunt anyway. It would (laughs) be be fun to find out. <laughs> well, that sounds good. Thank you for sharing that. I bought some really great dried fruits this year for my Christmas pudding, Christmas fruit cake, and some dried figs, dried pineapples. Oh, Just yeah. they look so beautiful. Mm. I skipped the traditional red and green fake fruit. Um, yep. For the fruit cake this year, I, I've never really liked it. I don't. I think it actually adds. Um, Sure, it adds some visual interest Mm -hmm. and that, you know, it's maybe a Christmas dessert. But I think for most people, when they see that, they don't think it tastes very good. And so it's actually having the opposite effect Mm -hmm. of kind of turning them off. Yeah, I think that is the turnoff because by the time those maraschino cherries get turned green by whatever process (laughs) that is, they don't taste like anything but sugar anymore. And so using a nice, well-prepared dried fruit really makes a huge difference. I'm with you. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to share with you that I did recently, and I think we've talked about doing this before, but I had a little mishap at the end, and that is making my own whipping cream at home just by taking a mason jar, filling it half full of whipping cream, and then passing it around the table and letting people shake the jar until they're tired, and then they pass it on to the next person. Oh, yeah, yeah, And they keep shaking the jar. Um, Note, warning, (laughs) if you have a house full of children... Don't just give them this jar and then walk away from the room because guess what you'll get back? Butter? Butter! (laughs) 
Which is great if you need butter, but not if you need some whipping cream for your pie. So okay. um, just a quick reminder, this is a really fun thing to do at a holiday dinner, especially if you do have a kid's table or you want to give the kids something to kind of give them a little activity, but keep an eye on it because they'll be so excited with the shaking. They might not notice when the liquid has stopped moving and they're turning your delicious heavy whipping cream into butter. Although I appreciate their tenacity and sticking yes. to that chore that you set for them. So way to go. I am I'm actually thinking about adding some uh, herbs and maybe a little bit of garlic or things in there and just using that for my compound butter that I like to have around the holidays. That's kind of nice at your holiday table to put on your rolls or something like that. So oh, yeah. it will not go to waste. Oh, good. Well, I'm all for child labor. So here, here. Over on our Facebook group, we have about 400 listeners and we have a special treat for them this week. Back in episode 98, we talked about getting your pantry ready for the holidays Mm -hmm. and we created a pantry list that you can print out and check off we've got one for the u.s and one for the uk so they're formatted differently eight and a half by 11 versus a4 paper but we also have actually changed up the ingredients a little bit so that the uk one is more specific to what you can get and what you need for your holiday baking the u.s one is more based on what i can get and what i need for my holiday baking yeah and if you haven't yet joined our facebook Facebook group, please do head over there. We will have a post with links to those two documents so you can download them, go through your list, check things off, and make sure your pantry is ready for the holidays. Yeah, I really love that giveaway. I love making lists. And I also love the message I sent you debating that suet should probably only appear on the UK version. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a wise decision. How many texts uh, are going around the world in any given moment about suet? I don't know. Yours and mine may have been the only ones on that day. So, (laughs) Well, up this week, we're ready to review our sweet potato pie from What's Gabby Cooking? This is the pie inspired by Patti LaBelle's famous sweet potato pie. And Stefan, why don't you kick us off? Tell us how this pie turned out for you. Start by saying that last episode, in episode 100, you and I both awarded a second season blue ribbon. And this just narrowly missed that cutoff because we were just doing that up until episode 100. That's right. So sweet potato pie from What's Gabby Cooking is now in the number one spot for my favorite of season three. (laughs) Wow. Of course, it is also in the number two spot and the number three spot and the number four spot. It is because it's the first, but... (laughs) I think we're really starting off third season with a winner here. I loved this pie. As we talked about last episode, I've eaten sweet potato pie. I like sweet potato pie. I have never made it. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that is. I just haven't. I think it's that it always gets supplanted by pumpkin this time of year. I think you're right. There was a fairly straightforward pie crust that did involve a blind bake. And I went back to our shoe fly pie and some of Alton Brown's blind baking tips. That was in episode 65. And I also noticed that our friends from Pie Provisions have a blind baking section on their website. So if you are not familiar with a blind bake, which simply means to pre-bake your crust before you put the filling in, do take a look and I think that will help you. I also used Andrea, listener Andrea in Germany, the blind bake filling with sugar. So I did that and I once again had great success 
fill it with a little parchment and then the sugar and it gets into all the nooks and crannies in a way that I've never been able to get the pie weights or the baking beans. So yeah. I had a good success with with my blind bake. My filling caused me a little trouble and here is why. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, first of all, this just amused me. She calls specifically for two large orange-fleshed California sweet potatoes, but guess Guess, guess where my sweet potatoes came from. Let's see. You're living in London. Your sweet potatoes came from, I don't know, the English countryside? Oh, no. No, no, no. Much further south. I used Egyptian sweet potatoes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. I don't know if I've ever eaten Egyptian sweet potato. Mm -mm. They were fabulous. Uh, Here's here's the issue that I had, Andrea. Um, She calls for about one and three-quarter pound. My one and three-quarter pound did not then equal the two and a half cups of puree that she calls for Mm -hmm. in the recipe. So I had to boil up another quarter pound. So I think we had had kind of said last last episode, watch out for that. I thought it was going to be fine, and it was just off by a little bit, which was irritating in the moment. I also did not boil my filling. I roasted my sweet potatoes. Oh, and nice. I loved that. So you can boil. There she has the instructions for that. I roasted mine for one hour at the equivalent of a 375-degree oven. Loved that. So if you roasted them, then did you save yourself a step and not have to peel them? Did you just roast them whole and then just scoop out the flesh? Yes, that's exactly. As if I were going to just eat them as a baked sweet potato. Smart, smart. Mm -hmm. I'm liking that because I was slightly annoyed when I realized I had to peel my sweet potatoes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that does. And then you can also, it's not maybe as hands-on time as boiling a pot of potatoes because I just went and did something else for an hour, came back when they were soft, scooped it out, and away I went. I also just think the roasting adds a nice flavor that you don't necessarily, an extra bit of flavor, I guess, that you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. get with the boiling. I think you're right, yeah. I liked the filling here. I thought it was silky smooth. I do not understand why that would be silkier than a potato, just the the vegetable, I guess. I served this to my father-in-law when he was in town and my husband. I will say my kids were not interested. I was not fooling them. This was a vegetable pie, so (laughs) (laughs) they were not interested. But we, the three of us, sat around and ate our slices in near silent rapture, <laughs> at which point we all then pushed forward our empty plates and had another piece directly wow. after. Yeah. This was a winner. Loved it so much. How did it go for you, Andrea? I didn't have as much success with my blind bake. Okay. I'm glad you now are reminding me about Alton Brown's. I kind of tried to wing it. I don't mean wing it. I mean, I followed the directions, but I didn't go back and read any of sort of the blind bake best practices. Okay. It turned out okay. My first one really, really shrunk. Okay. I had a lot of shrinkage. And then, because uh, I made this pie twice, my second one mm-hmm. didn't shrink as much, but it still shrank quite a bit. Okay. So I didn't have, when I made my second one, I made sure to leave like almost an inch over the edge of the pie plate and it still shrunk way down in a lot of areas. So I'm thinking back now, I think sometimes when I do my blind bake, I freeze the crust before I bake it and I didn't in this particular recipe. So that's where I'm thinking I messed up. But so from a a beauty perspective, it wasn't my most gorgeous pie. Right. Um, but, you know, it still tasted great. And I did boil my sweet potatoes. I, you know, she said too large. And then it w- you were going to end up with about one and three quarter pounds. So I just decided I wanted to get uh, sweet potatoes that were about a pound a piece. Okay. So 
I actually picked up five, and that's why I ended up making um, two of the pies. I was thinking I would give my dog the leftovers, but I had so much leftovers. Too much. (laughs) Uh, Too much that I just thought I'd go ahead and make it as a second pie. I didn't have any problems making this pie. It was super easy to make. It came together very quickly. I brought it to an event with a lot of children, and I know at least two of the kids there got second helpings. So kind of an opposite experience of yours. And then my husband, when I gave it to him, he said, oh, I like this so much better than pumpkin pie. Yes. My daughter refused it. She had no interest in it. I don't even know that she knew it was a vegetable pie, per se. She just sort of took a look at it and said, eh, no thanks, not interested. So I loved it. I thought it was great. I had one piece the first time around, and then the second time around, a couple days later, when I made it and I had my second piece, Mm. then I had it with some whipped cream, and Mm. I liked it both ways. I thought it was really, really good and silkier and smoother than a pumpkin pie. I'm thinking it's all that butter. There's seven tablespoons of butter. I mean, almost an entire stick of butter in that filling. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And it does say a quarter cup, half and half, or heavy cream. I happen to have heavy cream, so that is what I used. So, And there's no half and half in this country, so you know I used the cream. <laughs> mm, oh, yeah. Seven tablespoons of butter might have done it. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. My pumpkin pie that I make is actually on the healthier side, all things considered, mm-hmm. because it just has, you know, the evaporated milk, which can be like a low-fat milk even, and the eggs. There's really no other fat in there. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, this was so good. My husband, who usually says his favorite pie is a pumpkin, requested this for our Thanksgiving. So this was a big deal pie in my house, and I really, really loved it. Well, up this week, this is, of course, the fourth Monday in November. So we didn't think we'd be reviewing this next one, which is a hummingbird bundt cake from Southern Living, of course, a round bundt cake to finish out our round month. And Andrea, though, because you just had kind of a low-key month, it wasn't like you had two family birthdays and <laughs> Thanksgiving and getting ready. I think some work travel was in there. You went ahead and made this, so I'm really delighted that you can tell people, not only introduce it, but then tell people your experience with this cake. That is true. So um, I did pick this cake. Of course, I, I wanted to have a bunt cake in round month because I just, when I think of round, I do think of bunt cakes. I think they're so beautiful, the shape of them. And you had made some hummingbird cupcakes, I think back in the summer, right? Yes, or late spring. Yes, I did. Yeah, so ever since you had done that, it was sort of on my mind. And then um, this particular recipe caught my eye. I love Southern Living. I think they do a really good job with their recipes. Yeah. And I do think a Bundt cake is way easier than, you know, a frosted three-layer cake, for example. Mm -hmm. So... I was super excited to try it. It's also a one bowl recipe in terms of the cake batter. So your dream come true. (laughs) You know, I love that. Yeah. So it's very easy. Um, You start off just by toasting some chopped pecans in the oven, get those nice and toasted, put about a cup of those in the bottom of your bundt pan. Of course, you have first greased and floured your bundt pan. Mm -hmm. I went ahead and used, I was out of my Baker's Joy. I went to the (gasps) grocery store and they didn't have Baker's Joy brand, but Pam had a butter spray brand. So I used that one and it worked beautifully. I didn't have any sticking at all. Is there a Baker's Joy issue perhaps going on? You've you've struck fear into my heart. I hope this was maybe just a stocking issue. (laughs) You know, I think it was more about Pam is more prevalent. And, you know, the the Pam cooking spray aisle in my 
regular grocery store is huge. It has yeah, like yeah, 10 yeah. different varieties because yeah. there's outdoor spray and indoor spray and coconut spray and this spray and Olive that spray. Olive oil. Yeah, right. I just okay. think it's okay. about Phew. that. Don't, All right. don't worry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so you put the nuts in the bottom of the pan. Then you stir up the batter in one bowl. And it's so easy. It's just three cups of flour, two cups of sugar, some baking soda, some cinnamon, and some salt. Then you stir in um, three beaten eggs, uh, almost two cups of mashed ripe bananas, and a can of crushed pineapple that you don't drain. Now, Stefan, guess out of all of these ingredients what I had so much trouble finding here in the States. I am going to give a good guess because when I made my hummingbird cake, I had the same issue, and I'm going to guess the crushed pineapple. What the heck? Why uh, is crushed what pineapple the heck is so right? hard to find? I went to, I think, four different stores, and everyone sells the pineapple rings yes. in the can, and a lot of people sell the pineapple chunks in yep. the can, but yep. I could not find crushed pineapple anywhere. What is going on? Dole <laughs> people, please tell us, what did you end up doing? I whizzed mine around in the food processor. That's exactly what I did, too. I thought, especially since they say don't drain. I mean, yeah, you're, yeah. Just, you're just trying to get the pineapple and the juices. Um, so I whizzed mine around in the food processor. And then it also has um, some canola oil and some vanilla. Okay. So you mix that all up. At that point, you will realize that what you have just basically made is a banana bread batter with the addition <laughs> of pineapple. <laughs> I went, oh, wait, I know what this is. Um, You pour it on into your bunch. You cook it for about an hour and 10 minutes. I think mine actually ended up taking an hour and 15 minutes. You cool it for 15 minutes. I have learned to set a timer for that. I've I've learned that when I am taking cakes out of the pan to prevent them from sticking, I want Mm -hmm. them to be warm, Mm -hmm. but not too warm and definitely not too cool. So 10 to 15 minutes does seem to be that magic time where it still pops out just beautifully. Okay. And then I let it cool completely. And then I made the glaze, which was just a delicious cream cheese, powdered sugar, vanilla, and a little bit of milk. So kind of your typical cream cheese glaze. And I drizzled it all over the top. Mine probably could have been a little bit thinner because when I poured it, it didn't drizzle and drip as much as Mm. I would have liked. It sort of had like some big drops, but it it was still pretty. And when we cut that cake and ate it that night... Everyone seemed to like it. A couple of people went back for second pieces. I definitely liked it, but I thought it could have been more moist. Oh. I don't want to say it was dry. Maybe okay. it was just that it really was more, in my head, kind of banana bread texture than yeah. cake texture. Okay. okay. Denser, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because you have eggs, mashed banana, pineapple, and canola oil. Those should be all adding moisture, it seems. I know. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know what I would do to kind of fiddle around with it. I, mm-hmm. I really don't feel I overbaked it. I set it uh, for, it's at 350 and it's at an hour and 10 minutes. And I checked it in an hour with the crumb test and it was still very sticky. Okay. I checked it in an hour and 10 minutes and I still had some crumbs sticking. And then I checked it in an hour and 15 minutes and that's the first time I pulled the crumb tester out and it was dry. So okay. I don't know, maybe I should have pulled it at 110 when there was still a little bit of stick in there. But it's hard to know with those kind of cakes sometimes also because of the banana and the other things that are in there. You don't know if you've tested a particularly gooey piece of banana. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Or if it's the cake batter. Yeah, maybe I should have poked it in more than one spot. 
Mm. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I speak from experience. So yes, I've done that too. But well, thank you for that bonus review. That is really nice to round out our round month. And we will have both links for those recipes. That was the Patty LaBelle inspired sweet potato pie from What's Gabby Cooking, as well as this hummingbird bundt cake, which was from the Southern Living website. We will have those in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 101 up on our website, preheatedpodcast.com. Devin, this month's book club, we both read the book called Born Round by Frank Bruni. Frank is the food critic for the New York Times. And I actually had picked up this book a while ago and read it. So it was a fun reread for me. Um, I think this was your first time reading it. So maybe I'll let you start us off and tell us what you liked about this book, what you didn't like, what sort of things maybe stuck with you after you were done with it. Yeah, I mean, I love food memoirs. So I went in with just kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling about this book. And the other thing that makes you feel kindly toward it is the cover, at least the cover of mine, has an adorable picture of Frank when he's probably, I don't know, like nine or 10. Yes, what do you think? He's I think just, so. oh my gosh, just, so you cute. You just want to so. squeeze his cheeks. He's just yes. the cutest, most adorable thing you've ever seen. I just Absolutely. love him. Yes. And the things that I really loved about this book were his obvious love of food and tradition and family and what it meant to grow up in a family where that, those things were so honored yes. and important. So I loved that feeling of this book. And he carries that through, I think. The thing that surprised me about this book, Andrea, was how poignant it was. Yeah. I wasn't prepared for it to be quite as sad as it was because Frank has struggled throughout his life with food issues, yeah. including some eating disorders. Yes. And so what makes it a fascinating read is that someone is able to kind of conquer these demons to go on to be a food critic for the New York Times right. without sabotaging his health. But there's a lot of sad places along the way where you just want to give this guy a hug and say look you know you're adorable and you're so smart and you have all of these things going for you and his his self-worth was really taking a hit and that was hard to read and I really felt for him it was really hard especially seeing how much of it started at such a young age that yes one thing that really stuck with me you know his initials are FB for Frank Bruni but he said when he was eight or nine years old that the kids called him fat boy. And yeah, I just thought, you know, here he is in his 20s and his 30s and his 40s and he's struggling with eating and stuff. And so much of it seemed to go back to that when he was a little kid. It just broke my heart. Yeah, yeah. And and also some misguided attempts by various people in his life to put him on diets and talk to him about like, you know, different, different things that were in the long run really detrimental and kind of how that affected him. I think also, you know, being a larger, like he, he says, you know, he was the largest person in his family too. So being surrounded by people who can kind of eat the same way as you, but aren't affected by the food in the same way is really hard also. Yeah. And, and clearly he had issues from a young, young age. I mean, he was telling yeah. stories when he was about two and three years old that, I, yeah. you know, I'm guessing obviously his his parents have told him about how he would throw up. I mean, he would eat yeah. too much and yeah. throw up even at that young age. So, um, yeah, something that just plagued him his whole life. And, yeah, when his mom put him on the Atkins diet when he was eight, I just... Oh, that was hard. Yeah, that was hard to yeah, read. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's definitely more lighthearted moments in this book as well. I thought it was very entertaining always to hear about how 
critics have to disguise themselves or sneak around or get their friends to come with them and order all these different things off the menu. And I was amazed, Andrea, I have never seen it so spelled out how much those food critics have to eat. So he was saying a normal week for him would be seven, at least seven meals out. So um, sometimes he would be eating twice a day if he needed to review a particular restaurant at the lunch hour as well, or some kind of special, maybe brunch or other type of type of menu that they were offering. And how he learned to cope with that in light of these other issues he had with the food was very remarkable and I felt very proud of him for being able to overcome that while still doing this thing he loved which was embracing and enjoying food and also writing about it. Yes, I really enjoyed contrasting this book to Ruth Reichel's Garlic and Sapphires because yeah. she so enjoyed that aspect of being a food critic where she had to disguise herself and have yeah. the different strategies and she really adopted yeah. different roles and different costumes and different outfits and different personas. Yes. And it seemed like Frank was more hit or miss. Like he would often forget <laughs> the name he was dining under. So he would just show up at a restaurant yes. and be like, I have a table for four at nine o'clock. And they would say, what's the name? And he'd be like, mm, it, do you have a table for four at nine o'clock? <laughs> you know, just hoping that they would say something like, are you Mr. Carlisle or whatever the name was. Yes. Or he'd give them the, a celebrity name because it was like the first name that popped into his head. And they would look at him and be like, yeah, you're not Robert De Niro. Are you? <laughs> He said, my name is Mr. Stiller. And they said, what's your first name? And the only thing that popped into his head was Ben. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And they're like, no, you're not. (laughs) That was interesting, too, that the New York Times has a special agreement with American Express where they provide them with a slew of credit cards with fake names on them. Because the minute one of those names is recognized, it gets passed around to all the other restaurants. So they constantly have to come up with new names and new personas. Yeah, absolutely. And he also has a funny bit in there about taking his friends out to get the maximum number of items ordered off the menu. He would regularly dine out with, you know, like three friends to make up a four top. And he would be trying to signal to them, like, order this. And they would be you know, what's what's my what's my story? They'd want like a backstory as well. And who are they supposed to be? Right, you're going to be a and, couple getting married and we're yes. going to be giving you advice on your upcoming yes. wedding. And yes. It was, it was so all funny. very, very um, dramatic as far as what had to go down just to <laughs> just to order. Um, I loved that. Um, but I did just want to kind of leave on a higher note um, with a part that was my favorite part of the book, perhaps. And it's when he's talking about his mother's preparation for Thanksgiving. And I know we just had that holiday in the States, but I thought this would probably ring true for for many folks. And he he starts off with a timeline of his mother's preparation, which starts like two weeks before. And then the day of, he's breaking it down almost by the half hour. Yes. So I just thought it was very, very, um, very heartfelt, but also really funny. Yes. So This is what's happening at 12.30 p.m. Lay food on the buffet table. Somehow find space for separate bowls of corn, green peas, creamed onions, canned cranberry jelly, because some people prefer it to homemade, homemade cranberry sauce, because some people prefer it to canned, stovetop stuffing, same reasoning, real stuffing, ditto, (laughs) 
mashed potatoes, and pureed sweet potatoes with little marshmallows on top. Find additional room for two casserole dishes of manicotti. Then find more room for a broad tray of individual foil-wrapped yams, which you have to have in addition to the sweet potatoes and the mashed potatoes, because again, diners have very particular preferences within a given genre, <laughs> even if the genre is as tangential as tubers. You mu must find yet more room on the buffet because you're also setting down a basket of napkin-swaddled warm biscuits, and of course, the gargantuan platter of carved turkey with the dark meat clustered in one section and the white in another. Put out the sliced baked ham as well. Though no one's bound to eat the ham during the main meal, it's going to be necessary for the sandwiches later on, so you might as well make it available now too, just in case. Worry, are there enough yams? Has dad fallen behind on the carving? Amid all the worrying and arranging, use the turkey drippings to make gravy. Gravy is the final, last-minute flourish. So, <laughs> just love it. And he goes on to talk about what she does at dessert time, too, um, and ending with saying that she deflects all of the compliments of people saying, you've outdone yourself, by laughing in a careless fashion and saying, oh, please, it was nothing. It was nothing. <laughs> I know. And when I read that section, I just could not believe that in addition to all of the traditional Thanksgiving food that we think of. Yeah. But she was also whipping up two casseroles full of manicotti, which is such a yes. heavy dish to me. Yes, yes. And she's just constantly, and, then, and there's a whole section on what she prepares for the appetizers and then calling back people about, you know, four in the afternoon because now she's got the sandwich tray prepared in case you might be wanting a snack at that point after your, after your meal. So. And the tower of clementines she would peel yes, all yes. of the clementines and make this yes. big pyramid tower of them and that was sort of a palate cleanser between yes. the yes. main meal and the dessert course and i just thought oh my gosh i cannot even imagine going over to that house and um just the amount of food and the production and it did sound like so much fun and just such a great family they all obviously really loved each other and sounds like they still get together and celebrate a lot of the holidays together yeah, absolutely. So that's definitely a lighthearted section in what was at other times a more serious book, I think, than I was prepared for. So just maybe know that going in if you are if you are going to pick that up if you haven't yet already. But we'd also love to know what our listeners thought if you read along with us during round month. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Andrea, our second season was enhanced by so many people this last year, so we want to take a moment to acknowledge the many friends of the podcast we were and are lucky enough to have. That's right. First of all, our families, who week in and week out are our number one guinea pigs and taste testers. It may seem like a dream come true to have a never-ending supply of home-baked goodies being <laughs> offered to you. But sometimes you just want to eat an Oreo cookie in peace and not have to review it. Many of you have told us how much you love our theme music. We do, too. We are grateful every day to Anne-Marie Russell for allowing us to use her brilliant song as our upbeat intro and extra music. And we encourage you to check out her catalog of CDs available on Amazon or iTunes or at annemarierussell.com. And tell her preheated sent ya. Stefan, we've also had some great interviews this season. Many thanks to the memorable Helen Goh in episode 80 and Julia O'Malley in episode 96. And just in case you think networking isn't worth your time, consider that it was two friends of ours who put us in touch with each of these amazing bakers. You never know who knows who. 
So thanks to Angelique Sunter and Megan Rashad for their support of the show and for having two incredible friends. We were also fortunate to have Pie Provisions sponsor our show last February and provide an amazing pie-themed giveaway to one lucky listener. So if you are in the greater Atlanta area, be sure to stop by and see Lauren and her adorable store. And remember, you can check out her pie supplies online at pieprovisions.com. And last but certainly not least, you, our listeners. You are an energetic, kind, and and creative community who prove the point of preheated daily. Food and baking brings people together. We love and are humbled by your support and enthusiasm for the show, wherever in the world you happen to be. I would also like to thank you, my co-host, for giving me a call two and a half years ago and asking if I wanted to join you on this podcasting journey. I've never regretted saying yes. Preheated has been one of the most creative, educational, worthwhile, and downright fun jobs I've ever had, not to mention the most caloric. And it is my great honor to help create something that I hope is a bright light and a soft space in an oftentimes out-of-control world. I can't wait to see what the future holds. I'll second that emotion, Stefan. I'll never forget how quickly you said yes when I made that phone call. It was a dream come true for me. I was ready to dive into my sales pitch and twist your arm, but you made it so easy. I recently re-listened to episode zero, where we discussed why we were starting a baking podcast, and I was so pleased to discover we stayed true to our roots, and we really are fulfilling our mission of exploring the learning and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. Next week, we're kicking off an adults-only, fun-filled month with some tipsy treats. But don't worry, we'll stick with our proudly PG rating. We hope you'll join us as we celebrate the end of the year with holiday desserts and gifts made just a little bit livelier from the addition of some of our favorite alcohols and liqueurs. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please do tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening, and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.